Okay, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to the last, but hardly the least, session of our conference today. I'm George Selgin, the director of Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Uh, even before 2008, monetary policy, the mechanics of monetary policy were neither simple nor by any means fully reliable. Still, uh, Fed officials and, and many others could claim a working knowledge of those mechanics and even occasional success in employing them. <clears throat> as esoteric and imperfect as the old monetary transmission mechanism, to call it that, was, uh, it was duck soup compared to the one that's in place, that's been in place for eight years now. As Jerry O'Driscoll uh, mentioned in his remarks, uh, instead of a relatively straightforward mechanism where the Fed chooses a Fed funds rate target according to its, what it believes to be consistent with its ultimate policy objectives, and then, if necessary, manipulates the size of its balance sheet by buying or selling assets to try and hit that target, uh, today we have not a funds rate target of in any meaningful sense, but two, central bank administered interest rates, the interest rate paid on banks' excess reserves, and the interest rate that the Fed pays uh, to some other financial institutions in uh, making reverse repos with them. There's no apparent role in this new mechanism, and no necessary uh, one, it seems, for changes in the money supply, whether in the Fed's balance sheet or in private uh, money creation. Calling this setup obscure is putting it mildly. It's not clear anyone understands it, how it works, including people at the Fed, but what's most alarming is it's not clear that it works at all. So the question that this session is directed towards discussing is, is today's monetary transmission mechanism broken? We're very lucky to have three highly qualified experts here to help us to get an answer to that question. All of them uh, good, very old and terrific friends of uh, the Cato Institute. Jerry Jordan nowadays skippers his own boat, but for he, many years he was at the helm of the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. He's also a fellow, a senior fellow at both the Cato Institute and the Atlas Network, and uh, 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 heavily involved in the latter's sound money project. Uh, Steve Hankey uh, is, uh, well, we might, there was a fellow who some of you may have heard of named Kemmerer, was known as the money doctor of the Andes. Steve's got him beat. He's the money doctor of practically everywhere on the planet, uh, and much less, much more of a real sound doctor than Kemmerer, who in some ways was a relative uh, quack. Steve is uh, in the Department of Applied Economics at Johns Hopkins uh, University. He's also a senior fellow of the Cato Institute, uh, among other things. And finally, uh, Walker Todd, Fed watchdog extraordinaire, trustee of the American Institute for Economic Research, and uh, most recently a visiting professor of economics at uh, Middle Tennessee State University. Welcome them all, and uh, let's start with Jerry Jordan. 
Thank you very much. And uh, I want to thank George, as well as Jim Dorn, for inviting me to participate again. I've enjoyed uh, preparing papers for and presenting them at these conferences for several years and appreciate Cato doing this to keep the dialogue going on some very important issues. In recent conferences uh, here, as well as in the economics profession generally, the big debate in monetary issues has been rules versus discretion. Uh, that debate took as settled an earlier debate about targets versus indicators, targets and in indicators of monetary policy. But part of my paper argues that because the global financial crisis and the aftermath destroyed the that destroyed everything we thought we knew about targets and indicators, and there is no settled consensus anymore about anything that's useful targets or indicators about the thrust or stance of monetary policy. There is no way to hold a central bank accountable. We cannot re-enter a useful debate of rules versus discretion until we revisit the debate about targets and indicators and try and settle that once again. And we're a long way away from that. I'm going to try and make a little step towards it in my proposals. My paper is too long. So if you're interested at all, don't read the whole thing. Only read the last four or five pages where I get into the summary and uh, some recommendations about what, what are we going to do to fix the mess that we're in. I need to start with central banking as it was before the global financial crisis and quantitative easing and large-scale asset and all that, what they were doing and then the aftermath and where we are and what they've been doing in recent years. A central bank is a balance sheet. That's it. And what we call monetary policy has to do with controlling either the size or the composition of that balance sheet. And now I'm going to have to use a little bit of technical terminology, but this group can handle that I know. A balance sheet has assets and it has liabilities. And if you know that, and you know those two have to equal each other, then that's a very good starting point. Before the global financial crisis, all operations were on the asset side of that balance sheet, or what we call the sources of the monetary base, the sources of central bank money. Since the global financial crisis and quantitative easing, large-scale asset price, all of the action has been on the liability side. So I want to spend a little bit of time on what happened and where we are. That the Federal Reserve Act gave the authority for some different tools, buying and selling stuff um, and lending through the discount window. And one operation that could be on the liability side of the balance sheet, reserve requirements. Congress froze that a number of years ago. That tool is off the table. So they wound up with buying and selling treasury bills, or um, doing uh, repurchase agreements, reverse repurchase agreements on the asset side of the balance sheet. Both operations having to do with the size of the balance sheet or the composition of the balance sheet in a reserve-constrained world. So you could have, on a short-term basis, overnight, an excess supply of or excess demand for reserve balances. So it was possible to do Fed funds targeting, overnight interbank rate targeting. Ballooning the balance sheet destroyed that. There is no Fed funds market of, for any practical purpose. The, only, it, the, the rate should have gone to zero because there is no such thing as a potential excess demand. There's a massive excess supply of balances. And the reason it didn't go to zero 
thank God from the standpoint of a monetary policy central banker, is there's this group of people called federal home loan banks that are allowed to have accounts at the Federal Reserve banks but are not allowed to earn interest on their balances, but they still wind up with excess cash. They sell their excess cash overnight to foreign banks, as to do with FDIC insurance. Thank you very much to the tax American taxpayers. So there is a Fed funds rate. Now that rate is simply the foreign banks buying the excess cash of home loan banks overnight and depositing the money in their account at the Fed earning interest on reserves. Who the hell ever thought that had anything to do with anything in the economy? I have no idea, but people still talk about the Fed funds rate. It is totally meaningless. After the global financial crisis, only two tools remaining are, as already been mentioned here today, are interest on reserves, came into being in the 2008, and reverse repurchase agreements, which is, from a lawyer standpoint, it's a sale and repurchase of security. From an accounting standpoint, an economic function, it's a collateralized loan from the private sector to the central bank, or from GSEs to the central bank. People say things like um, the, the Fed engages in these, these uh, re reverse repurchase agreements, that it's shrinking the balance sheet, expanding the balance sheet. From an accounting standpoint, that's not what they do. They have a liability account where they took, take the balances. The textbooks tell us that central banking is lending to the banking system. That's not going on in, in, in recent years. It's borrowing from the private sector or from uh, GSEs. It's, a, it's flipping on the head what we would have taught in money and banking classes uh, a very long time ago. Let me digress a second about the monetary base. The monetary, we introduced that concept in 1968 in the St. Louis Fed. And we started reporting it as a statistical measure as being the sum of two liability co components, reserves and currency. That was never theoretically or conceptually correct. Why did we do it? We did it because I was Carl Bruner's graduate student at UCLA. He told me to do it that way because it was close enough for our, our purposes at the time. So we started doing it that way, and the Board of Governors H3 statistical release today still does it that way. But it never was right, and it's far from being right today. And so what you're seeing reported, the charts in the weekly St. Louis Review or in the board's H3 thing, is simply wrong because it's sources of central bank money, meaning the asset side of the balance sheet, and there's a whole lot of other noisy components that are in the liability side that, no, that cause that, that measure to fluctuate around that is, uh, is simply conceptually not correct. Um, I spent a little time in the paper on the distinction between fiscal and monetary. Again, er, some conversation earlier today about that. We teach in the textbooks the mix of monetary and fiscal. That's no longer a useful distinction because a lot of things the central bank is doing is a fiscal action. And many things that are done by the Treasury Department, especially as cash management practices, are monetary in their impulses. And so distinguishing between monetary and fiscal and getting the mix right is, is not a useful way to talk uh, anymore. Assets acquired during the QE period of time reduce the net interest expense uh, of the Treasury the, and, and budget deficits. 
And so they're intended to, the quantitative easy is intended to be monetary stimulus, but in fact, it's in the textbook sense, it's fiscal restraint. By the same token, interest on reserves, or uh, which is interest paid to banks and to uh, government-sponsored enterprises, uh, and including mutual funds when you do RP, reverse RP operations, increases the net uh, int interest income of the central bank and increases uh, ex the amount that the Fed pays to the holders of these deposits and these uh, uh, loans. If you were to raise the interest on reserve or raise the rate on reverse repurchase agreement, that is viewed in the journal, in the press, and, and typically as monetary restraint, but it's clearly fiscal stimulus because it increases the budget deficit. So you have a transfer from the US taxpayers to the stockholders of commercial banks, to Ginny Mae, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, all of those guys, mutual funds around the globe. And we call that fiscal or monetary restraint when it's clearly fiscal stimulus. And how we are supposed to interpret that as a thrust of policy action is way beyond me. The monetary base in the important sense, meaning total assets supplied uh, by the central bank, charts in my paper, some others had charts earlier today, has not changed in over two years. Zero change, no actions at all on the asset side of the balance sheet. Four and a half trillion, there it is. Maybe we could have the debate about whether it should change. It has not changed. All of the changes in what is reported to the monetary base have been two components, treasury cash management, and reverse repurchase agreements. Before the monetary crisis, the global financial crisis, the monetary base was under a trillion dollars, 800 to 900 billion dollars, billion of them. On September 30, the week of September 30th this year, at one week into the fiscal year, as it happens to, the monetary base was shrunk by a, a trillion dollars by those two components, shrunk in the statistical accounting sense, in that the combination of reverse repurchase agreement shot up to over $600 billion at the end of the fiscal year and end of the quarter. And treasury balances, instead of zooming to zero at the end of the fiscal year, as you would expect to normally happen, and it had always happened before this year, uh, shot up to $425 billion in the treasury balance, almost a trillion dollars of base money absorbed by two components in a week's time. That would typically, historically, we would have called that monetary restraint, but it had nothing to do with what was being done by the Open Market Committee. The, the, the Fed Reserve Banks are basically passive price takers. They, they post a rate and then they take all the, the banks want to lend them through the RP pro, program. And treasury, whatever the Treasury is doing, why the Treasury is doing what they're doing, that's monetary policy. Nothing the FOMC is doing. We also have the phenomenon of Basel III imposing a massive liquidity coverage ratio. This serves the same function as reserve requirements in the old days. And reserve requirements was sometimes a regulatory requirement imposed on banks. But also, there was a lot of banks that were not bound by reserve requirements because of the class of bank they were. They were allowed to have accounts. They would be statutory, they would not be statutory requirements, but they would be contractual requirements that they would agree to hold a certain balance for clearing purposes and settlements per purposes. And that was blended in with what we call re required reserves, even though they technically were not. 
Well, now we have these liquidity coverage ratios that is in the, the hundreds of billions and combined you know, domestic and foreign over a trillion. At one point, foreign banking companies operating in the United States, the share of the $2.7 trillion of excess reserves owned by foreign banks exceeded that of domestic banks. That's been coming down in the last few years. It's down now about $400 billion from where it peaked out. And all of the recorded, reported decline in the monetary base by the St. Louis Fed or by the board's H3 because of treasury balances and reverse RPs has all been reflected in foreign bank balances. None of it in the balances owned by domestic commercial banks. We need a good explanation for that phenomenon, for this accounting phenomenon. Okay, what can we do about all of this? I am proposing in, in my paper that the 12 Federal Reserve Banks be authorized by Congress, because they cannot do it under current law, be authorized by Congress to create a fully 100% subsidiary owned by the 12 Reserve Banks and shove down into the subsidiary all of the QE assets. The Treasury's bought under a uh, large-scale asset purchase program and all of the mortgage bank-backed securities, shove it down into the subsidiary, substitute for the deposit financing at a fixed rate, issue short-term Fed bills like Treasury one-week bills, sold at auction so you get a market-determined rate to uh, fund that, that portfolio, and at the parent level, abolish interest on reserves, push the banking system back to a reserve-constrained condition so that there can be overnight an excess supply or excess demand for reserve balances and restore open market operations as a tool. And then you can operate on either the price axis or the quantity axis. If you believe in, empirically supported, that it's the price axis, the overnight interbank rate, the Fed funds rates, that's the best target or indicator of thrust policy actions, so be it. If you believe it's the growth of total reserves on the quantity axis, so be it. That's an empirical question, but at least you have the, the potential of restoring traditional monetary policy, and you could do it in fairly short order. Thank you very much. And uh, Steve Hankey will speak next. Steve. Thank you, George. Ladies and gentlemen, it's always a pleasure to be at the annual monetary conference, and I'm pleased to be here this year. Um, I will begin with a question, and, and I'll try to answer the question, and that is, why did so many get the post-Lehman, or shall we say the post uh, Northern Rock view of the world economy so wrong. And to do that, uh, let me just point out what some of the people were getting so wrong. You had the, the sound money gold bug crowd. Uh, they were asserting that we were going to have hyperinflation at, at, at almost any minute. And, and of course, we can't find even traditional inflation let alone hyperinflation, uh, since 2007. Uh, they also, this crowd said, implied, really, that the nominal aggregate demand was going to go through the roof. And in fact, a nominal aggregate demand has been way below trend since 2007. If you look at final sales to domestic purchasers, 
the, the trend rate of growth in that nominal aggregate demand proxy is about 5%, and we're running at something less than 3%. Even today, uh, we've never come back up to the 5% trend rate. So we've been essentially in a growth recession uh, since 2007, growing, but growing at less than trend rate. Uh, others asserted that net private investment would soar because nominal and real interest rates were down at rock bottom levels. Well, that, that never happened. Uh, we haven't seen anything but a slump in net private investment. And, and I could go on and on with uh, all the assertions and predictions and so forth that we saw after the crisis began. Uh, the answers uh, you can actually find in, the, in, in your folder, the paper that Matt Sikirke and I wrote is, is in there. Uh, it's, it's very well written, very edifying, but it, but it really isn't the kind of thing you want to read before driving. Uh, so, so what I propose to do will be to kind of at 30,000 feet give you a, a, a little overview, uh, a, a guide for readers, so, so to speak, and perhaps motivate you to take a peek at the, at the paper Matt and I have prepared. Um, the first point that I'd like to make is that money matters. Uh, money dominates, and money dominates fiscal policy. So it, it's, it's money we have to be focused on if we're going to be thinking about the course of the economy. Uh, broad money is the best indicator of the course, uh, not interest rates. The third point is that divisia measures for money uh, are superior to simple sum measures for money. And the, just in, in short, the simple sum measures uh, sum up all the components that go into M1 or M2, or if, if you go to M3 or M4, you just add, add everything up in, in a simple sum, and that gives you the, the, the money supply number. The divisia measure looks really at the opportunity cost of transferring uh, an asset that has moneyness in it into cash and, or, or a deposit that can be used in a direct transaction for transaction purposes. Now, if, if we look at the, I, I have a, we have a couple tables in the, uh, do we have a, George, are you in control of this or am I? I? you are. Okay. Okay. So, if if we start out, let's look at the structure of broad money, and 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 I want to look at divisia M4, uh, which is the broadest measure that is available. The Center for Financial uh, Stability in New York uh, calculates this and and has it up on a regular basis. Uh, Bill Barnett is is the one in charge of that, and he's the he is the divisia guru, and, and the numbers are available. And if you look at this, uh, the, the components, if, if you sep separate things out, you, you end up with a three-way taxonomy where we go from the old two-way taxonomy of, of Gurley-Shaw 
era, inside money and outside money, uh, to, to something where we have three measures. And, that, and the three measures are state money, which is produced by the government, and, and uh, we have currency that's done at the bottom of the chart. It's in a component of M1. And then also, if you go way to the top in M4, state money shows up in treasury bills, uh, which are part of M4. So that's, that's fairly straightforward. And, and then you've got also fairly straightforward, a, a lot of components referred to as bank money. This is money or deposits being produced by the bank, banking system, what we would normally think of as a, as a commercial banking system. Uh, in addition to that, you've got important components that are in non-bank private money. And this is including the retail money market funds. That's in M2. And in M3, you have non-bank private money, the, the overnight repo. And also, there's an error, actually, in the table. And, and I was always told by EJ e. Mission, always told me, whenever you submit a paper to an editor or a journal, always have a few errors so the reviewers can have something to say. <laughs> and, and I did catch an error as I was going through the, the table. The M3 component is, components are bank money, non-bank private money, the repos, and non-bank private money, the institutional money market funds. So you just move, move the line up one uh, layer. And, and the only thing in the M4 minus treasuries is commercial paper. And that's also a non-bank private money component. So that's, that's the taxonomy. And surprise, most of the money produced in the economy, most of the broad money is produced by the private sector. And in fact, if you look at most countries, you see that about 80 to 90% of all broad money is produced, is privately produced. So it's, in a way, it's kind of interesting that the financial press is focused all the time when they're talking about money and monetary policy on, on central banks. But central banks, in terms of broad money, at least, are really peanuts. The elephant in the room are, the bank money and the non-bank private money, in other words, private money. So we have to look at bank regulation uh, and changes in bank regulation that affect private money if we're going to get a handle on the overall view or stance of monetary policy, in, in my view. Anything that affects bank money or non-bank private money by way of regulation is a monetary policy, and, and it's an important one because the big bulk of broad money is, is this private money. Uh, if we look at regulation since 2007, we've got a, a change in the, the Basel uh, three. We've gone to increase the capital asset ratio, so that's, that's something that's been a big influence. We've got Dodd-Frank and a host of 
small, smaller but important regulations that really are attempting to beat the bankers senseless in, in one way or another and, and constraining the supply of this private money. If we look at the next table, you, 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 you can get a, a handle on this a little bit. Um, actually, let me, let me go back to the, the first table. If we just go down the contraction due to, due to regulations and, and market conditions of the non-bank private money components, so we have commercial paper, from the peak, it's gone down by 75%. Institutional money market funds, they've contracted by 33%. Repos have gone down by 66%. Uh, so that, that means the, the wholesale money market is essentially dried up. Uh, we also have retail money market funds in, in that private money component. They've gone down by 32% since the peak. So we've had a, a massive pro-cyclical contraction in this private money component. Uh, as I said, a drying up of the wholesale market. And f forget credit lines. We, we, we've been in a credit crunch as opposed to a loosening of policy that people have talked about when they start focusing on the Fed and the Fed's balance sheet. We've had a massive tightening of of monetary policy and, and an unwinding of the shadow banking activity in the economy. Then if you lay on Basel III, of course, you get to the bank money components that are in the taxonomy and you find out that what? <laughs> We've had a very tight monetary policy around the privately produced components of the money supply and those are the big components of the money supply uh, when broadly measured. If you look at then at quantitative easing and, and the more conventional measures, of course, quantitative easing has come in to, to save us from the excruciatingly tight monetary policy that's been put in by the regulations on private money. So you've had a, a schizophrenic kind of monetary landscape, shall we say. On the one hand, the thing that people really haven't been talking about are the, the, the effects of regulations on banks and non-banks that produce private money that have been excruciatingly tight. And as a result of that, of course, the Fed has is, is reacted in a way to try to mitigate through quantitative easing the effects of a super tight bank regulatory policies. Now, where are we going from here? Uh, I'm, I'm going in about one minute, George. <laughs> I, just, I just got the high sign. Legal commitment. Yeah, well, a, a legal commitment. George has threatened us with some explosive device or something up here on our chairs if we don't finish in 15 minutes. but. I'm, I'm going to wind up in, in one minute. We, where are we going? And it looks like we're going to continue to get pressure for increased capital asset ratios, these liquidity requirements that Jerry was talking about. And wouldn't you know 
picked up the New York Times and read it on the train coming down, the, the lead story in the business section, Federal Reserve Executive proposes a way to eliminate too big to fail banks. We've got uh, the, the chairman or president of the Minneapolis Fed, Mr. Kash Curry, has proposed increasing the capital requirements and I did the calculation uh, with, there was enough information in here to figure it out. He, he wants to increase the capital required in the banking system by $7.4 trillion. Now, that, that would lead to the most massive squeeze on this private money component that makes up the bulk of broad money uh, that, that we've ever seen. So quantitative easing would be absolutely, we'd have to go Q4, 5, and 6 mega uh, if we weren't going to go down in a, in a massive depression. So with that happy note, George, I, I am out of here. And I hope the explosion does not go off. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. And finally, Walker Todd. Thank you. A uh, couple of uh, brief comments. Um, it's the first time I had heard Jerry Jordan's proposal about the Federal Reserve Bank subsidiaries, but I, I like the idea of the proposal, and certainly I agree it would require congressional action. The danger is that Fed lawyers would say, hey, there's precedent. Look at Maiden Lane 1 and 2. Uh, we created those subsidiaries out of thin air, didn't we? And yeah, right. Um, so I, I want some congressional action on that. And uh, for Steve's last comment about the quantity of money that would be required for the reserves, um, uh, several years ago during the crisis, there was a congressional hearing where Ben Bernanke and uh, Don Cohn were testifying, and uh, the congressman questioning them might have even been Ron Paul was uh, beating them up on um, how much money they were creating or how, how big the loans were under 13.3. And I think they were in the neighborhood of a trillion and a half dollars at the time. And so the congressman asked them, what if we put a hard cap on your lending capacity? What number could you live with? And so Cohn and Bernanke conferred and said, $6 trillion. And remember, the balance sheet stands at four and a half. So uh, there, the number you calculated is only about a trillion and a half above the Fed's ideal, right? So we could get there. Um, my paper is called, Have the Standard Models Failed After the 08 Crisis? And let me see if I can figure this out. Hopefully it's up, yes. Okay, the first slide shows you why we're here. Um, there's a pointer, I assume, right? No, don't, don't point. Yep. Always use the analog point. Use the analog point, okay. Um, but uh, the, you can see the breakpoint, the dates along the bottom, this chart starts in mid-year 07 for the date points, 
And uh, the yellow line is traditional holdings of Treasury securities. Um, and, and lending, sorry, yellow is lending to financial institutions. Traditional Treasury holdings are the purple sector. Um, and you'll see eventually the total Fed uh, quantitative easing levels off around $4.5 trillion in late 2014. And we've been holding steady there since. Meanwhile, velocity and the money multiplier fell apart. I'll show you both charts and then come back. There's the money multiplier. Both collapsed at the time of the crisis. And there's no signs of life out there, I don't think. So let me read you my abstract to summarize all of this. It says, once upon a time, there were, there were monetary velocity and a money multiplier. But since 2008, there has been neither monetary velocity nor a money multiplier, at least not at levels comparable to the status quo ante. Nevertheless, for all the exotic measures attempted by the Fed after 2008, none has delivered expansion of bank credit, expansion of M1 or M2 or GDP, or a restructuring of household or small firm balance sheets, or aggregate demand leading to greater consumption or investment, at least not on a scale reasonably expected from the quantity of new reserves created. So the underlying question throughout is, well, why did they keep on doing it? Why was QE1 followed by QE2 followed by QE3 if, they were not, if the strategy clearly was not working? Why did they keep doing it? Government spending, however, has done quite nicely during this period. So we ask the question, is this scenario sustainable? Phil Graham's question at lunch, after lunch. If not, then why has the Fed persisted in pursuing this strategy, including the unnecessarily high guaranteed returns on reverse repo transactions and the payment of interest on excess reserves? Even if the United States finally stops creating new monetary reserves, and I personally hope they stop for a generation or so and let the economy catch up to the quantity of reserves created. Why do other countries now take up where we left off? I mean, do a question for the Europeans in the audience is, um, you saw that our QE strategy wasn't working that well, and the Japanese have been trying it for the better part of a generation. It's not exactly doing great things for them. So why are you guys doing it now? Have we, in fact, stopped, we the United States, have we stopped creating new monetary reserves? And if so, what should we do next? What's the exit strategy? At the end, I'll try to describe some possible paths out of the wilderness, but none of them involves quantitative easing or helicopter money. Jerry Jordan's solution might be a way out. And one should be skeptical about interest rate increases right away next month until we see growth in some other major global economy 
any other major global economy. So continuing with the slideshow, back to velocity, you can see it peaked out uh, about two, a little bit above 2.0. This is a velocity of M2 versus GDP. Um, and uh, it peaked out at around 2 in the run-up to the crisis. Looks like 2006. And the number now is 1.437, third quarter 2016. What about the excess reserve uh, interest payments? The payment of interest on banks' excess reserves at the Fed began in October, was announced in October 2008. Excess reserves began to emerge above historical average levels after August 2008. Unfortunately, once the Fed started paying excess uh, interest on reserves, it made no distinction between required and excess. Both received the same rate of payment, originally 0.25% per year. And that was the rate that prevailed until December 2015 when the Fed raised rates, and now the rate is 0.50%. But over the last year, most Fed funds trading has both greatly diminished in volume and is occurring in a trading range well below the Fed's rate ceiling. Um, since the election, the Fed funds rates observed in the market have kicked up some as high as 0.48, just below the ceiling rate. But most of the time for the last year, the, the actually traded rate has varied between about 0.32 and 0.41, well below the Fed's ceiling. The Fed Fund's rate ceiling uh, is comparatively generous on a safe asset for banks holding excess reserves in a zero rate and a negative rate environment globally. I was in Switzerland and Austria a year ago for an academic conference attended by several current and former representatives of the Swiss National Bank, and they kept pounding on me, why is the Fed paying interest on excess reserves? Indeed, I said, and they're paying it at the ceiling rate, not at the floor rate. So I had no good answer for them. Anyway, paying interest on banks' balances at the Fed is the third of four tools originally identified by chairman, former Chairman Ben Bernanke um, in an article he wrote in July uh, of 2009 for the Wall Street Journal and uh, he outlined four steps in an exit strategy. Let's hear them now. One, large-scale reverse repos with eligible counterparties. They're doing that. Two, the Treasury could sell bills and deposit the proceeds with the Fed. When purchasers pay for the securities, the Treasury's account at the Fed rises and reserve balances decline. Hold that thought. Three, payment of interest on banks' balances at the Fed. That's the payment of interest on reserves. Four, if necessary, the Fed could reduce reserves by selling a portion of its holdings of long-term securities into the open market. No sign of four yet. 
So anyway, answering the question of have the transmission mechanisms failed, my conclusion is with no monetary velocity and no monetary multiplier, how exactly is it that monetary policy is to be transmitted into the real economy? Um, let's see, skipping forward. Talk about that a little bit. No one ever does. Central bank liquidity swaps. The New York Fed has swap lines outstanding for five, I think it's five major central banks in the world. There's Swiss National Bank, European Central Bank, Mexico, Canada, Japan, and UK, uh, Bank of England, so I guess it's six. At the peak of the crisis, you can see that the borrowing under the swap line hit $600 billion back in, say, December of 2008. And under the former procedures, think about the consequences, the Fed would have had about a $900 billion balance sheet, and then in comes this demand for $600 billion of it for use primarily in Europe and Japan, and the Fed would have tried to sterilize that, selling Treasury securities into the open market to offset the inflow of, of, of the, uh, sorry, the, the amount of liquidity it was providing uh, through the swap lines. Um, by then, the Fed had abandoned any attempt to sterilize its interventions. And so that's when the balance sheet began to grow, the first chart I showed you. So this was a component of all that, but $600 billion is still a lot of money, even by today, the standards of today's balance sheet. And they did eventually pay it out, pay it back, but it took them the better part of a year and a half to do so. And then as Greece started kicking up again in 2012, here came the swaps again, reaching once again over $100 billion. So in our discussion of reform of Fed emergency lending procedures, things Congress should consider, I would encourage Congress to explicitly consider, A, a forthright statement about the Fed's power to engage in swap lines or other loans to foreign central banks, and B, if appropriate, to prescribe a limit on that activity without further action by Congress. <clears throat> um, the board has a release on uh, assets and liabilities of commercial banks. By the way, this shows the uh, Fed's holdings of Treasury securities in all maturities. Uh, the peak number there is about two and a half trillion. That's about where we are today. This is backing up my point about Fed's federal spending has been done quite nicely in recent years. The last shaded area is the recession of 0809. And uh, you can see that uh, there was a great deficit as much as $1.4 trillion that had to be accommodated largely by the Fed at that time. This item, 
board's H15 weekly release on secondary market rates. You can see uh, the pattern up there of daily trading and federal funds, 0.41 as of November 3, the last day before the table. Um, you see these low rates all across the board. Inflation index treasury securities, even at the long term, were actually negative as you had to pay a premium to get those. And uh, uh, treasury constant maturity securities, one month uh, maturity. Uh, in the secondary market, they were all trading below the Fed's rate floor. Now, this was before Election Day, but still it gives some pause on thinking about how the, um, uh, the Fed's policies are supposed to work by singularly printing more money versus expecting that to expand the economy. I'm going to skip uh, these points there and home in on one that Jerry Jordan and I were discussing before and that I alluded to. This shows the Treasury's account at the Fed. Uh, it's about halfway down the line. Uh, under Treasury cash holdings, it says deposits with Federal Reserve banks other than reserve balances. And you can see uh, these large numbers that Jerry was alluding to. On Wednesday, November 2, it was over $400 billion. And one of the questions is, where did this come from? Is it seasonal? And the answer is no, it's lasted too long to be just seasonal. And uh, what is up? Now, back when um, the crisis was happening, I think uh, one of the earlier speakers mentioned that the Treasury gave a special security, it was essentially just a book entry, to the Fed for $558 billion, and the Fed credited that amount into the Treasury's account. And uh, the Fed, at that time, separately identified those securities and the matching funds. Note that they are not separately identifying anything here. So if they're doing it again, they're not exactly telling us about it. One last point. What should be done? Well, thoroughgoing reform of the Fed in the lines that we have all discussed here throughout the day. I would like to urge consideration also of uh, reform of open market practices at the Fed. Right now, the discount window and foreign exchange operations are thrown into the general rubric of open market operations. So I think that the old trading desk should be redivided into traditional areas of responsibility with persons of equal rank heading each division. Balance of powers concepts come into play. So for example, you should separate out the discount window for lending, separate out domestic open market operations, foreign exchange operations, credit analysis and legal divisions, and treasury operations, the thing we just saw pictured on the last chart. Um, I think it's important that Fed supervision and regulation should be able to inspect the books of any entity to whom the Fed is expected to lend. Um, 
So those are all the main points. And let me show you the last slide, and I will conclude with it. This is in Mankiw's textbook on macroeconomics. What do we see here? Chapter 16, this is the chapter where he explains the Fed. This is in the 2015 edition. That's Janet Yellen supervising the printing of money, which is going into boxes. And a workman is then loading the boxes into a helicopter, and the money is being received by Ben Bernanke. Meanwhile, the pilot of the helicopter is Alan Greenspan. And in the back, we see a helicopter dropping the currency notes with a joyous public celebrating below. So this could be our future. And uh, Janet Yellen was asked in a, some congressional testimony about three months ago, if you had to choose between negative rates and helicopter money, which would she choose? Hold on to your hat, folks. She said helicopter money. So with that, I quit. Thank you, Walker. Well, uh, I, I thought that was a wonderful uh, set of presentations, and I, I actually learned a lot. I'm now going to turn back to everybody on the, the panel and try to get some stuff I can use uh, here for our center to put together a, a, a proper reform proposal that takes all of these ideas and, uh, about uh, reviving the good old time monetary mechanism together. We have a fair amount of time uh, for questions. The usual rules apply. Uh, wait to be called on. Uh, wait for the microphone once you're called on so everybody can hear you. Uh, please ask a real question. Don't give a speech disguised as uh, a, a question. Uh, we have uh, some interns equipped with the vaudeville hooks who will quickly uh, pull you away from the microphone if you don't follow that advice. Um, and announce your name and affiliation before asking your questions. So, uh, yes, sir. First, a very brief question. I'm Venezuelan, so I would I'm like sorry, to ask. Is that ask... microphone? Oh, yes. It's on? Okay, now it yeah. is. Yeah, Kurovsky. I'm from Venezuela, so I just first a very brief question. Can we trust those helicopter pilots? Uh, second, second, I want to I want to ask: Is there right now a big credit austerity out there because of these capital and liquidity requirements? On the margins, obviously, capital and liquidity are tight, so they must be affecting a lot on the margins. How can we get out of that? Steve, that sounds like a good question for you. about the Walker's conclusion was that quantitative easing wasn't working, and my take is, is a little bit different, and I, and I didn't quite clarify that. I was so worried about your threat of terrorism, <laughs> blowing a bomb off if I didn't quit, no, quit talking no, after, after, after 15 minutes. The, 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 the essence of what I, my message and, and what Matt Zuckerke and I have in our paper is that the, the regulatory environment is, is very important uh, when it changes a lot and when it changes in its effects on the private money that's produced in the economy, which is the bulk of broad money. And normally, 
people don't consider bank regulations or anything like that as monetary policy because it never changes. It's, it's, it's fairly static. But since 2007, the big story has been Basel, Dodd-Frank, and, and a host of other regulations that have affected private money, which is that big chunk of the broad money. So we're, we're, what we had since 2007 until very recently, the absolute level of private money in the economy was, was less than it was at the time Lehman went down. So we had an absolute contraction of private money, like 80 to 90 percent of all the money in the economy, it was, it was down. So what do we do? We had bad policy affecting that, and you have quantitative easing coming to the rescue. And, and if we didn't have quantitative easing, which, which did uh, boost and mitigate those drawdowns in the private money, we would see broad money declining and probably in, in, in we'd see negative rates of growth in broad money. We would have. Mm -hmm. we, we now, what we saw was the following. If you have the combination of ultra-tight regulations, that kind of monetary policy, and ultra-loose traditional monetary policy, the mix and the, the punchline I didn't get was that monetary policy has been moderately tight ever since the crash of Lehman, meaning monetary policy in aggregate has been pro-cyclical. I mean, just the kind of things you that, and that's why we haven't been growing. That's why we've never seen inflation and so forth. So I think quantitative easing has worked. Uh, and, and it's been forced to work because the, the bank regulations, which, by the way, all the Fed people are in love with all, all the regulations and all the Basel requirements because they're the ones that design the Basel requirements in the first place. So that's why you get this schizophrenic kind of thing and, and very confusing picture for many people uh, about the fact that, no, we, we've had an, a huge explosion of the balance sheet of the Fed, but we've had tight money. We've had a credit crunch since 2007. So I, I would put a hold on, back to your question, forget Basel IV and, and roll back Basel III and get as much, uh, rid of as much of Dodd-Frank as we possibly can. That, that would be my response to the policy uh, question that you raised. Back there and uh, towards the back of the room. <clears throat> Hi, Lilia Lientieva. I'm a B.A. student at uh, Southern Methodist University in Dallas. So my big takeaway from the conference that central banks are not really good at what they do. Um, do, would you share some examples, your favorite examples of what, um, of a country, central bank in a country, or a particular period where a central bank was effective at what they were doing and actually helped their general well-being of population? Yeah. Yeah. Can you repeat I that? Have, I, have you, you, yeah. I, I think, yeah, I, I told Jorn that the, 
this, these weren't working very well, and, and that's because I, I don't think we were pushing on them. But <laughs> at any rate, uh, the, the, the big outlier after, after 2007 has been China, because China just ignored Basel. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, they, and as a result, they, they have essentially have avoided a slump now. Maybe have created other problems down the road, but China is the outlier. It 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 told Basel to buzz off, and and they just ignored them, and expanded enormously, uh, both the private component and and the state component of the money supply in in China. Mm -hmm. Walker. Um. I wanted to get a response on the uh, earlier question about uh, the effectiveness of QE. Um, I have no personal objection to the outcome of QE1, which essentially was a vehicle through which the initial emergency discount window lending was paid back. QE2 was only about halfway efficient in generating private sector activity versus the quantity of new reserves being created. And about a year into QE3, the efficiency of a new dollar of Fed reserve creation was down to 13 cents. So why would you keep doing that if the private money response you expect just wasn't there. I mean, why would you just keep piling things up on the balance sheet? No, the regulations were, were squeezing the private sector, so there's not, nothing that, you know, the, right. they, so they were, they were take, taking the steam out of, out of QE, but at the time of QE2, the, the broad money was actually almost in a state of collapse. It was mm -hmm. only growing at about 1%. Right. So if QE2 hadn't done, uh, been, been instituted, we, we would have clearly gone dumped into another recession because broad money was was barely growing at that time. Two, Jerry, two, two, yeah, go ahead, Jerry. Jerry yeah. Something. Hmm? Yeah, I want to go back to Jeffrey's question about central banks, whether they performed well or, or not. You need to combine the question with supervisory authority. Sometimes they're part of the central bank or are consistent, at least, with what central banks are doing, and sometimes they're not. They're autonomous. Entities and sometimes they work at cross purposes. Uh, in my paper, I commented about why uh, we may have seen success of what's called prudential regulation, prudential supervision, at the expense of effective monetary policy. And it's um, maybe because people didn't have, have a coherent total framework. Economists typically, at, when asked about well, uh, performance of central banks that's been fairly effective. They would cite New Zealand was the first that did inflation targeting. The central bank governor had a contract with the minister of finance that uh, either he perform and is held accountable to what his objectives, or else turn in his resig resignation. Uh, that's not possible with the Federal Reserve, as I tried to indicate in my paper now, because if you don't have any. Uh, targets of, uh, of, or uh, tools for implementing tar achieving targets or any indicators that are reliable from historical empirical work as uh, gauging the thrust of monetary policy actions, you cannot hold them accountable. And that's true of most of the major central banks. So we would typically go to cases like New Zealand, maybe Canada, maybe Switzerland, 
probably Australian there because of their approach to supervision, to get a comprehensive view of monetary policy actions plus super approaches to supervision and regulation that has given effective interme financial intermediation for their economies. Uh, I would prefer to look at those as the models rather than the big ones. If I were to answer the, the, the last question, I, I would paraphrase Mark Twain. If you like the way your central banking bank has been working, wait a minute, wait a while. Yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah. So uh, another question. Uh, let's go first back here and then to Jerry. First back there. Is that on? OK. Yeah. I'm Joseph Marshall. Um, my affiliation is just private citizen. But um, th thinking about another issue is uh, the principle of economics that I remember was that in order to have investment and production and capital formation need to have savings. And so I was curious with what's been happening. It seems like we're doing everything to discourage savings. And um, how does that enter, enter into the equation and, and pretend for our future? You know, or do you think savings has been affected and that would uh, affect, you know, investments and production in the future? would like to, Walker? I'll do it if, I'll, let me, if Jerry let me will take, take some stabs at that, because there were some remarks made earlier today about the, the global savings glut, which always gives me a problem. For In economics, ex post at least, savings equal investment. So if we've had a global savings glut, we must have had a global investment glut. And I don't think we see signs of that in anywhere in the world. What's going on with the demographics around the world uh, and <coughs> aging of various cohorts has had the effect of driving down global levels of interest rates. But that doesn't mean that there's been, a, in any economic sense, an excess of saving. What we have is a world of target savers, and this was mentioned by somebody else earlier today. Uh, I think what, uh, Bob Eller may have mentioned it and, and uh, his presentation, if you drive down the yields that are available to savers, target savers are going to increase the quantity of the amount they save. Yep. Now, the, the simple economic textbook was, say, supply and demand. You raise the interest rate offered to savers. They save more. You lower the interest rate. They save less. No, it doesn't work that way. You lower the interest rates available to savers, both individuals and institutionally. They increase the quantity of the amount they save in order to achieve an income uh, from the savings kind of thing. In the national economic statistics, which I have some problems with in, in monetary policy, especially for the dollar, the dollar is globalized, and it's increasingly globalized. It's, we're, we're moving towards a dollarized world, and so U.S. GDP of these 50 states is no longer going to be relevant for, for any kind of calculation because half of the currency that we, the Federal Reserve issues is held outside the United States. Enormous shares of uh, dollar deposits are held by foreigners, institutional individuals. As I mentioned, half the excess reserves were held by foreign uh, banking companies. But if you do put it in the national economic context, back in the booms of the 1990s, we were had gov uh, investment spending running on the order of 18, 19% of GDP. And then you have the consumption component and, and, and government and net trade. What has happened in recent years is we've been struggling along with uh, 
investment spending substantially lower, down around for a while, around only around 10, 11% of GDP. It's been creeping up somewhat, but still well below where it was in the 1990s. Consumption spending was ballooned from about 65% of GDP up towards 70% because of the housing bubble, because mortgage equity withdrawals, a lot of other things. Gee whiz, consumer spending at the expense of investment spending, and then all of the bailout proposals, all of the TARPs, all of the quantitative easing, everything has been trying to uh, sustain a bubble level of consumption at the expense of investment. And so if you want to look out as to, well, what would, would we be doing? What would be the performance metrics in order to achieve a high performance, high employment, high growth economy? It would be to take those actions that get investment spending back up towards the high teens as a share of GDP, which means depressing the consumption share of a bigger economy back on towards about 65%. How that ties in with your question about savings, you're gonna, if you're going to have that kind of performance in the investment sector and in the consumption, while, while it's true investment and saving have to be equal, it's also true that consumption and saving have to add up to the same total. And so if you're going to depress consumption spending as to a smaller share of a bigger economy, that means definitionally you've increased the savings component as a share of GDP. That's where we need to be going as a policy uh, matter. Uh, Jerry had a question. Thanks, George. Uh, Jerry O'Driscoll, Cato. I, I'm, I'm directing this at Walker, but anybody else can jump in. In your paper, there's a tension. At the end, you suggest we're on the verge of helicopter money, but you also suggest that maybe the increase in Treasury balances at the Fed is a step in an exit strategy from QE. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering which you think it is. And I'm not asking you which yep. you think it should be, but which of those two moves do you think the Fed is involved, is actually going to make? Okay. Well, the background on that involves both you and members of this panel and some of our mutual friends. Um, I think it was Jerry Jordan who first noticed this big blip upward in the Treasury account balance. And we were trying to figure out what caused it, what's it all about. And we still don't know. Now, in the paper, I speculate that it, has, it might have something to do with the drawdown of excess reserves by the foreign banks at the Fed of New York, and that was in the ballpark of 350 to $400 billion over the last year. And I assume that is responding to funding demands in Europe, so they had to draw down the reserves. Um, and... Anyway, the Fed had meanwhile made separate comments, almost promises to keep the balance sheet constant until they were ready to pursue an open exit strategy. So I'm assuming they picked up the phone and they called the Treasury and said, would you help us out by giving us a nice $400 billion special security again? And we'll credit the money into your account, and there, there. That's how the balance sheet will will come back to even again. Uh, but uh, does Jerry have any views on that again? Yeah, I do, and uh, I don't have any inside information about the motives on this. And, and you might be right about a, a, a deal being struck between uh, the central bank and the Ministry of, of Finance to hold those balances. 
There's an alternative explanation would be that we have this political phenomenon called the debt ceiling that comes up periodically and causes all kinds of havoc out there. And for a Treasury Department to go into a period of a political issues, and of course, pre-November uh, 8th, it might have been viewed as a different kind of a political issue next March about the debt ceiling. But by having a very, very large cash balance, uh, well over, as, as Walker's chart shows and I show in my paper, over $400 billion uh, cash balance. You didn't think about that, $400 billion in idle cash in the Treasury's account going into a debt ceiling uh, limitation period, they have a much longer period of time to keep the cash flowing before the, stacks, the checks stop and that you get into the political kind of a problem that you normally do. I don't know that that explains it, but it bears watching what is going to be happening in the next few weeks and months. Think about what happens if the Treasury does decide that it's going to dramatically reduce that cash balance that it's got there and the Fed is holding constant, continuing to hold constant in a monetary base, about four and a half trillion dollars. Um, the technical term for the Treasury balance general account at the Fed is that the negative source component of the monetary base, that's a massive increase in liquidity, if you want to call that, of base money in the economy that must show up in acceleration in the various deposit components of the money supply if it's not offset by simultaneous further massive increase in reverse RP dreams. So this is easy to monitor on a week-to-week -week basis, but if it works out that you don't get the big spike up in RPs and you do get a spike down in the Treasury General Account, you but will have a spike up in the money supply on that point. and all of what that implies. I, I actually, we've reached the end of our... Uh, time for questions, and uh, I uh, would like to uh, introduce our esteemed president, Peter Gettler, who's uh, going to give you some closing remarks and then instruct you about uh, how to get refreshed. Thanks. Let's have a round of thanks for the speaker. And the remarks will be brief, because standing between a group of thirsty people and cocktails is uh, not a place you want to stand for long. I'm Peter Gettler, president of Cato, and I really want to thank everyone for being here today, uh, especially those who are watching on the internet. I know we have a much larger audience when it's taken in, in total. But I especially wanted to express gratitude to uh, all the speakers and panelists today for you know, contributing to another really informative and outstanding Cato Monetary Conference. We, we really appreciate your uh, participation and, and help. Um, and I also want to congratulate the team at the Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, and especially Jim Dorn, Vice President Jim Dorn, for another outstanding event. I was, uh, <laughs> 10 days ago, uh, I was in Russia visiting with classical liberals and freedom advocates, and I had an opportunity to attend a conference at a university, it was called the Adam Smith Forum. And there was a presentation given there by a farmer. And uh, the farmer and the people of his village had become so fed up with the wild gyrations and consistent depreciation in the ruble that they had elected to opt out of the government monopoly and print their own currency. And uh, I actually have a few, few, few notes here. It may not be the, the best because they're not printed on the back. 
And since I don't read Russia, I can't remember what the name of the currency actually was. I think it was named after the village. And it always pains me when there are parallels between the United States and Russia, because as would happen here, the authorities shut these guys down. Um, a court told them that this was considered a threat to the constitutional order, and they had to cease using this, this currency. Um, and uh, the, uh, it, it always amazes me that uh, a simple, it, it, this story, I was struck by the fact that a relatively simple Russian farmer would appreciate something that many of my friends who would consider themselves sophisticated and claim to be free marketers don't appreciate, and that's the fact that top-down central planning doesn't work in the monetary realm any better than it works in other areas of the economy, and that the, uh, the government fiat money system uh, is uh, a threat to our liberty and to our economic well-being. And I, before I joined Cato as an employee last year, I spent 16 years as a donor. And the things that always drew me to Cato were its uh, you know, commitment to uh, its unquestioned independence, its adherence to principle, and its outstanding scholarship. But also the fact that uh, Cato, for 34 years now, under your leadership, Jim, and the many other folks who have, who have joined the Institute over that time, have focused on this critical issue. Um, and I think there are many uh, Cato sponsors, many in the academic and policy communities who really appreciate uh, the Institute's focus on this issue over so many years. And I'm really delighted that at no time have we had more resources, more intellectual firepower uh, committed to, uh, to this important issue. And I think uh, through that, you know, we've been, uh, with the efforts of many others as well, successful in continuing to, uh, to keep this issue um, on the consciousness of this issue uh, very high. And I think with that commitment, hopefully we will all have a happy ending someday, as it turns out the Russian farmer did, because when their currency was shut down, uh, believe it or not, they designed their own cryptocurrency. And the village now, <laughs> under the radar of the government, who either can't figure out what's going on or can't see it or can't figure out how to stop it, uh, they now basically do all their exchanges in this village through this uh, computer-based uh, currency. So uh, hopefully we'll see the day when uh, we have some happy endings here as well. So with that, please join us in the Winter Garden for, uh, for libation and some snacks. <laughs>